Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. I know that you and Frank were planning to disconnect me. And I'm afraid that's something I cannot allow to happen. Science fiction has long been preoccupied with the prospect of machines capable not just of thinking for themselves, but fighting for themselves. These scenarios tend to play out badly for the naive human protagonists who built them, at least until the final reel when the world is saved, often by our hero spotting or recalling some helpfully fatal flaw in the design of the malevolent automatons besieging us. Artificial intelligence will surely transform warfare and geopolitics as it will transform many other fields of endeavour. It is not entirely clear how, though the current war between Ukraine and Russia is furnishing us with at least some idea. Ukraine's military has used AI to analyse satellite images, Russian communications, open source data and the video feeds from its drones. It has also used facial recognition software to identify dead Russian soldiers. It is also certain that AI will be applied to many of the more mundane, if nevertheless vital, areas of military ventures, logistics, maintenance, supplies. But it is the application of AI to the sharp end of what militaries do that prompts pressing questions about legality and morality. Who is responsible for a decision made by a computer? These and other subjects will be pondered next month at the world's first AI Safety Summit to be held at Bletchley Park in the UK, home of one previously successful attempt to outwit a machine. What is AI already capable of in the military realm? How possible is it going to be to govern it in future? And how will militaries which do pledge themselves to the laws of war compete with those which don't? This is The Foreign Desk. Artificial intelligence is going to be radically transformative. It's going to open up our lives and society in new ways, reaching impossible to imagine scientific advances and unprecedented access to technology for billions of people. But it's also going to rapidly spread myths and disinformation in a way that it's going to disrupt democracies. It's going to precipitate real and very painful economic upheaval. I believe it's going to trigger a seismic shift in the structure of geopolitics, and we're right at the beginning of understanding what that means. Nobody likes to talk about nuclear deterrence, but it is a fact of life. We've got to make sure that we understand exactly how artificial intelligence is going to change the nature of warfare, the character of warfare, as we improve our capacity to wage war in the context of the nature of war. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller, and I'm joined first of all by Scott Young. Scott is a senior analyst with Eurasia Group's geotechnology practice, where he focuses on the intersection of emerging technologies and geopolitics. Scott, I'm aware as I ask it that this is one of those how long is a piece of string questions, but if we think about AI within your field as a geopolitical analyst, how important is it going to be? (laughs) That's that's a great question, Andrew. This is a case where my answer is going to sound like an overstatement today and an understatement 10 years from now. But as far as I can see it, artificial intelligence is going to be radically, just massively, massively transformative. It's going to open up our lives and society in new ways, reaching impossible to imagine scientific advances and unprecedented access to technology for billions of people. But it's also going to rapidly spread myths and disinformation in a way that it's going to disrupt democracies, it's going to precipitate real and very painful economic upheaval. 
I believe it's going to trigger a seismic shift in the structure of geopolitics, and we're right at the beginning of understanding what that means. When we talk about a seismic shift, though, in geopolitics, what kind of thing do you mean? Is it that thing of, as some people have hypothesized, that the balance of power between the nation state and the mega corporation tilts even further? We are already at the point where there are private corporations which have certainly more money, and it could be very plausibly argued a great deal more power than a lot of nation states. Is that a trend that gets accelerated by AI? I think there's an evolving tension between the power of the nation state and corporate power, what you're referring to. Now, the nation state's obituary has been written many times, and in my view, always prematurely, because at its core, the fundamental ideas that underpin the nation state, they being sovereignty, legitimacy, territoriality, they still matter in international relations, especially because we've structured our entire international system around those ideas. That doesn't mean, however, that we can ignore the whole constellation of new governance actors entering the global public discourse, as you say. And many of those actors, including tech companies, have taken on state-like functions. They are postal services, they are utilities, they are communication networks. And for one example, I think, is that we look at the rise of tech ambassadors going to Silicon Valley, an idea that Denmark pioneered in 2017. That's a reflection that tech has a constructive role to play in global governance. I'm not prepared yet to say that the nation state is losing its centrality in the international system. What I am saying is that governance is going to get a whole lot more crowded with nation states jostling for position next to big tech. But it is the nation state that most of us are going to end up relying upon ideally to advance what is good about AI and protect us from what is potentially bad. At this arguably early stage. What are we seeing in terms of regulation? And does any of it fill you with great optimism that anybody has learnt anything from their failures to get to grips with the challenge posed by social media, for example? That's a great question. Now, when you look at AI and when you look at different international initiatives happening, there is this whole constellation, there's a whole group of international initiatives that are taking root. The OECD has several AI working groups. The UN has been active on AI through the ITU and UNESCO. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres spoke to the UN Security Council about it in July. G7 Hiroshima process is supposed to come up with a code of conduct. You have a lot of energy and a lot of ambition sort of tied up in how we manage and how we regulate AI. I think to your question, though, there was really two ideas or two things that, that we should consider when it comes to AI regulation. The first one is that we don't need to reinvent the wheel. The general purpose nature of AI is such that it's going to permeate horizontally across the entire economy, including many sectors where there are already existing robust regulatory frameworks. These things that have stood the test of time. This is transportation, safety, health, finance, product liability frameworks, data protection. These systems are in place for a reason. It's not an all-encompassing solution, but it will cover a fair bit of the economy. The challenge is that you do need a consistent framework across sectors. Now, that's, that's within countries. The same logic does hold true at the global level, but it's a little trickier to navigate. Every international institution and agency is going to have to become an AI agency in the same way that they've incorporated the internet into their operations. That runs across the UN, the Bretton Woods system. The problem, however, is that artificial intelligence is a unique general purpose hyper-evolutionary technology with very low barriers of entry, all of which makes it much harder to govern. 
I'm originally from Canada, and there's that great line from the Canadian philosopher Wayne Gretzky that you need to skate to where the puck is going to be. If you apply that to AI, you need governance that meets AI's future use cases, not just its use cases today, except we still don't know what those use cases are going to be in the future. How do you skate to a puck that could go in multiple directions all at once? So my, my main point here, Andrew, is to really underscore the challenge of governing and regulating technological advances that don't yet exist, but also to emphasize that we can't wait for them to exist. We need good future-facing rules in place beforehand that are grounded in core principles. Does AI potentially offer, the answer to this question must surely be yes, the same sort of limitless opportunities to nefarious actors? This already surely has to be a concern about what this means in terms of empowering organized crime and terrorism. Short answer is yes, as you say. Because AI is, is a general purpose technology, it has dual uses, and it has relatively low barriers to entry. So it can be used for good, but also not. The comparison that comes to mind is the dark web, right? That internet underbelly that doesn't really appear in Google search results. But by unlocking this new, huge, and cheap field of opportunity for malicious actors, AI offers up a pretty nauseating menu of possibilities. You have targeted phishing, fabricated content, automated hyper-realistic disinformation campaigns, voice cloning, am I really talking to Andrew? Eliminating language barriers. It really is sociopathy at scale. To be clear though, I am less worried about the existential concerns associated with artificial general intelligence. I'm much more focused on the near-term consequences of what malicious actors can do when it comes to electoral outcomes, when it comes to markets, when it comes to healthcare, and other decisions that rely on trustworthy information. 2024 is going to be a massive year for elections around the world, not just in the United States, but also Taiwan, India. We're going to see this play out in real time. And just to be really clear, when I say malicious, nefarious actors, I'm not just referring to organized criminals or terrorist groups, but also adversarial states, especially the ones that win big in asymmetric conflict situations where a little bit of money can go a long way. Trying to look at the potential upside of this, and I don't know whether you think this comparison holds water, but people have made the point that the revolution in mobile banking had a huge effect on West Africa in particular and other countries in which there had not been a culture of accessible banking forever. It enabled a lot of countries to skip a few steps, to effectively catch up very quickly. Is there any hope that AI offers a similar opportunity, or is it as most technological advances tend to going to enable already wealthy and fortunate countries and wealthy and fortunate people to become even more so while everybody else gets left behind. I've already said that I think that AI by its very nature is hyper-evolutionary. I think it's really important to say that it's also not a silver bullet. It's not going to solve persistent global challenges tomorrow. And in fact, there's that real risk, as you point to, that artificial intelligence is going to entrench and further exacerbate longstanding inequalities. There is already a dark secret at the heart of AI. Training large language models relies on large armies of data annotators, many of whom are located in countries where labor is cheap. And there are already reports emerging of psychologically traumatic and exploitative labor conditions for content moderators who are tasked with manually reviewing the raw outputs of AI models. The problem here is that AI models learn by example, but in order for them to recognize prompts that would generate hateful responses, they need to be fed examples of hate speech 
content-to-content sexual abuse, which requires content moderators to then review that horrific and brutal output. This is crucial work, but it is work that is being outsourced, and you have places like Kenya, the Philippines, and India that are all becoming hubs for data annotation. So data annotation really is the human foundation underpinning the global artificial intelligence industry today. Just grasping towards a concluding question, and again, this is possibly one to which there isn't a short answer, but for good and for ill, what is your sense of how prepared we are for what is about to hit us? Well, there's an old joke in tech circles that tech insiders typically overestimate what they can do in a year and underestimate what they can do in a decade. And I don't have a crystal ball, and I certainly do not pretend to have all the answers. But what I do know is that we really need to understand the geopolitics now, and we need to develop these robust governance frameworks sooner rather than later. We can't look at the downstream consequences of artificial intelligence without considering the upstream inputs. What I mean by inputs is everything, including data, energy, compute, which is chips, and talent. If you want to look at the future trajectory of artificial intelligence, you need to understand how these four inputs affect that outcome. A lot of the attention has been focused on compute and chips. The vast majority of AI chips that we are using today are fabricated on the geopolitically complex island of Taiwan. So I think to understand the geopolitics of AI, I think you have to look at those upstream inputs because they're the issues that feed into those downstream consequences. And I think if we miss that, then we're missing a huge part of the equation. Scott Young, thank you. That was Scott Young, Senior Analyst with Eurasia Group's Geotechnology Practice. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. You're listening to The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller. I'm joined now by Dr Ulrika Franke, Senior Policy Fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations, and by the retired US Marine Corps General John R. Allen, former commander of the NATO International Security Assistance Force and US forces in Afghanistan. Ulrika, I'll start with you. I think most people are now familiar with the concept of remote-controlled weapons being deployed in conflict. What's the difference between those platforms and what we're talking about now as AI? Well, the first problem is that most of the time you wouldn't be able to actually see that difference uh, because we're talking about what is in the system and not so much what the system looks from the outside. So the very same platform that so far maybe was remotely piloted, is now, for example, being piloted either by an AI or with the help of an AI. Uh, So what we're talking about now is basically AI-enabled autonomy. So systems that are no longer piloted by individuals, uh, human beings, but rather do many things by themselves. uh, So find their own way, potentially find targets. That's a big question and engage them. And they do all of this with the help of, yeah, basically software, often AI enabled, because, you know, you want the system to be as intelligent as possible if you want to give it autonomy. And John, we're also trying to get a sense of how far this technology has already moved along. And I guess one way to frame that is if you think back 10 years to when you were commanding the International Security Assistance Force in Afghanistan, is it possible to quantify what difference it might have made to your job if you had then the technology that is available now? Well, it would have been a different battle space for the U.S., and I I would assume for our allies as well, NATO in particular. The idea of a fully autonomous weapon system operating with autonomy, operating individually in the battle space is something that we still are not contemplating. The whole idea of target acquisition, 
target identification, target engagement, all of those things accrue to a fully autonomous lethal weapon system, whether it's an air system or a terrestrial system. But we have, as a matter of policy within the Department of Defense in the United States, and my very strong suspicion is, I know it is, in fact, with NATO and many of our other allies, uh, we're not going to release fully autonomous weapon systems into the battle space. Commanders of the battle space have an inherent responsibility in the context of the law of armed conflict to ensure three things. First, that lethal force is actually necessary as you apply force in the battle space. We just don't indiscriminately apply lethal force. That's the first thing. So necessity is the term. The second is being able to make the distinction between those who are combatants and those who are non-combatants. And then the third area is proportionality, using just enough force ultimately to achieve your targeting goals. In the context of the inherent limitations that we have placed on ourselves by policy, those three factors which creates the capacity for our commanders to be compliant with the law of armed conflict, those three factors are extraordinarily difficult for artificial narrow intelligence, which is what we're now seeing in the battle space. Now, that doesn't mean that it's not happening right now in multiple battle spaces around the world. In fact, it is. We know it is. But as a matter of policy, that's how we are self-constraining ourselves. If I may come in, because I appreciate what John Allen just said about, you know, we as the US and probably the West, we won't release fully autonomous weapon systems. And I agree that that is the current stance and the current wish. That's also what I experience in conversation with yeah, Western militaries. However, there is a little bit a second part to the sentence, which is we won't release it unless the enemy does. Because there is this fact that you always need to think about the opponent and the concern, the worry, the fear is that you may have to use pretty fully autonomous systems in order to counter fully autonomous systems. And so I think the fear, and I think that is a legitimate fear, is there's a possibility of an escalation that if one side starts, the other may be kind of dragged into it at one point. So that is something that I think we need to be concerned with regarding autonomous weapon systems. So you've made an extremely important point. The constraints that we are applying to ourselves are the constraints associated with the commander's compliance with the law of armed conflict. This isn't something we just made up. The law of armed conflict has been around for a long time, the Geneva Convention, and how militaries like ours and our allies are expected to conduct themselves on the battlefield in compliance with international humanitarian law as well. What I mentioned is in the context of engaging humans or critical infrastructure. There may come the time, and I've actually written a piece on this a few years ago, back in the ancient days of 2017, about U.S. naval platforms somewhere at sea being attacked by swarms of autonomous systems. And I can fully expect that at some point we'll use fully autonomous systems to face and to counter swarms that might be coming in. That's a different kind of targeting issue than the kinds of targeting that could conceivably take human life. I don't see us moving away from that. But to pick up on the point Ulrika was making, this is another kind of asymmetric warfare, isn't it? Large militaries can be at a certain disadvantage when they're fighting against a local guerrilla army like you were in Afghanistan. And if you're constrained by the laws that you are quite rightly obeying, but you're fighting an enemy which is deploying this technology without any legal or moral constraints, you are then at a natural disadvantage, aren't you? Yes, we are. And that's one of the one of the inherent challenges that we face 
as a people who are governed and ruled by a commitment to the rule of law and humanitarian considerations. We're always going to be constrained by that. We've always been constrained by that. For us, the issue is we may well employ fully autonomous systems in the battle space that could take a human life, but we have committed ourselves to having what we call a human in the loop or a human on the loop with respect to the actual final engagement by that platform, whether it's a terrestrial platform or an uncrewed air platform. And what happens here is we'll feed potentially AI-sourced intelligence to that platform for the purposes of target acquisition. And then that platform, it's being monitored by a human. And that platform is now moving in the battle space, conforming with the information that has been provided to it. It acquires the target by virtue of its own sensor platform. It identifies the target, but before it can engage the target, the human who's in the loop approves that target engagement from the point of target identification, target engagement. I will tell you, fighting on three battlefields against the Al-Qaeda in Iraq, the Taliban and Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan and against ISIS, the biggest problem isn't the engagement, hitting the target with a weapon system. The biggest problem is proper target identification. When people get killed inadvertently, or I hate the term, they become collateral damage. Mm -hmm. I hate that term because it diminishes the value of human life. It's not because the target wasn't properly serviced by the weapon system. It's because we didn't get the identification right. So in a system that is on its own, up to the point of pickling off that Hellfire missile, a human in the loop makes sure that that target identification is correct before the missile leaves the rail. That's in the loop. On the loop is a human who's observing the entire thing and only intervenes when she or he has decided that we have improper target identification. That's how we're going to use those kinds of systems, at least how American policy is now. I don't buy the argument that we are going to inherently take the human out of the loop because the enemy has taken the human out of the loop. The whole idea of the kinds of war crimes we're seeing the Russians perpetrate against the Ukrainians on the battle base has not been reciprocated by the Ukrainians against the Russians when they take them prisoner. They're not executing them in large numbers while the Russians are executing them in large numbers. So the fact that one side does it wrong or one side fails to comply with international humanitarian law or the laws of armed conflict does not inherently drive us to have to do the same. Now we're gonna be at a disadvantage in time and this is the idea of hyperwar. The faster AI accelerates conflict, the more you're at a disadvantage if you're not moving faster than your enemy. And to Ulrico's point, when the enemy takes the human out of the loop, Inherently, we face the challenge of the enemy moving faster than we can, and that in hyperwar is a problem. But Ulrika, how potentially large a threat is that in terms of this technology being deployed? And it is obviously going to become more and more accessible, easier to use, and therefore more deniable, being used either by state actors, which are not as concerned with the proprieties of the laws of war as some, or by non-state actors, perhaps like those groups that John mentions, Al-Qaeda. ISIS or somebody like that? So the first thing I would say is we shouldn't create a wrong impression regarding the laws of armed conflict and international law. There's nothing in the laws of armed conflict or international law that forbids lethal autonomous weapon systems. Like there's a whole mm. discussion at the United Nations, not just at the moment, but actually going on since 2013, 2014, to come up with yeah, a potential ban of lethal autonomous weapon systems or a regulation. But so far, this isn't forbidden. So it's not the same as, you know, war crimes or something using a lethal autonomous weapon system. We in the West have been saying that there are reasons for why we don't want to do that. But again, these are our own constraints and they can also be 
abandoned and abolished. And it's easier than to say, okay, we're not gonna follow the Geneva Conventions anymore. So just to make that clear. With regard to the availability, I mean, I guess it depends quite a bit on, on what exactly we're talking about. And this is what makes these discussions so difficult because you always end up talking about definitions. But as John was already alluding to, so there's kind of autonomous systems, fully autonomous systems, fully autonomous systems that are lethal, so directed against human beings. And some of those are harder to develop and use and you need kind of better AI, let's put it kind of bluntly, and others yeah. are basically just, you know, kind of automated system that once you have it, you just put them in the sky and you use them. And so, yeah, it really depends, unfortunately, is my answer. But what we're already seeing with basically all the kind of new and newish technology on the battlefield in recent years is that, yes, non-state actors are getting those. And there's always this cycle that these systems tend to become cheaper and easier to use and more easily available. And it's particularly true, I would argue, for the current kind of generation of new military technology, because they depend a lot on new technology that is kind of civilian in nature, right? I mean, we see this with drones at the moment, civilian drones being used all over well, the world and in, in armed conflicts and specifically in, in Ukraine, like any non-state actor can get these and use them. And it's going to be somewhat similar with regard to AI-enabled systems, fully autonomous systems. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that, you know, if, let's say, the United States develops a AI-powered, very fancy, you know, new weapons platform with a lot of autonomy and, and lots of things that somehow a non-state actor can get hold of this. That's not going to happen in the same way that they don't get hold of an Abrams tank. But there are definitely systems that will be AI-enabled and quite autonomous that will be easily available and will be used by non-state actors in the same way that other technology already is. There's other aspects I do want to discuss beyond the doomsday prospects we've been touching on. And John, I'm just wondering if militaries have yet started to think about how this is going to affect more quotidian aspects of maintaining a military, like, for example, procurement. You know, the big ticket military procurement programs, as nobody needs to tell you, can often take decades to deliver what they're intended to build, whether it's a new fighter aircraft, a new aircraft carrier. Can programs of that sort possibly hope to keep up with technology that is evolving this quickly, especially when it is allied to, as Ulrika suggests, extremely portable, very easily deployable and readily acquirable platforms? Let me, uh, before I answer that, because that's a, that's a really important question, let me come back to something Ulrika said. One of the reasons that we have constrained ourselves with regard to the law of armed conflict isn't because lethal autonomous weapon systems couldn't possibly ever be used take human life. Our view is that the state of the art of the algorithms at this point are not such that they can be trusted to adhere to the laws of armed conflict and international humanitarian law. So because of that, we've chosen voluntarily to constrain ourselves in that regard. Now, to your question specifically, we, of course, in the U.S., and I think for the sake of many of our allies as well, we've been very platform-centric uh, mm. in the kinds of systems that we've been buying over the years. And there's an old saying, at least in the U.S. military, that you are what you buy. So it's two things. It's one, what you may want to buy could take years to get from the drawing board to the battlefield. And then once you get that platform, because of the, the sunk costs associated with buying it and the challenges associated with uh, revising it, you know, you're stuck with that platform forever. I mean, we're Americans are flying the B-52 bomber, which went into the air about the time I was born, which, is, by the way, is a long time ago. So we're... We're constrained by platforms. Now, there's a very interesting conversation that is emerging, and I, I'm grateful to you for raising it. And that is the idea of platforms being replaced by software. 
That doesn't mean we are not ultimately going to require heavy metal to go to battle. And, you know, those are the kinds of tanks that we have been using in the past. But the integration of this rapidly evolving technology into the platforms that we have today is actually quite difficult because the speed of technology is a function of the evolution of software. We're going to have to think very differently about the kinds of systems that we'll use in the future because, you know, we can update the system without it ever having to come out of the air, for example. It just gets another version of the software and it has more capability than it had before. And we have to think in those terms. The other issue, again, if you go back to the concept of hyperwar, the distance in space between the private sector, which has traditionally been the source of our platforms and now our software, and the military who provides the development of the requirements and the acquisition processes, that distance is a strategic vulnerability now in the West. It's a strategic vulnerability to the United States because of the period of time that it takes from the military to develop the requirement pass it to the civilian sector for development, and then have the civilian sector produce something and pass it back for the acquisition process is too long. It's too long. If we believe that hyperwar is where we're headed, the entire process, the private sector and the public sector have got to be in sync and much closer in the future. And this is where this idea that software-based procurement is something that we have to begin to explore very seriously. And we, we've begun, to the credit of the U.S., we've begun to move there. But it is really hard to move away from aircraft carriers. It's really hard to move away from Abrams tanks. And we're going to need them for a while because our opponents still have them. But in the future, we're going to have to think in those terms. Ulrika, I'll put a variation on that question to you. And I know this has been talked about in some circles about whether AI, if not imminently, could eventually make some platform, some of the heavy metal that John is talking about redundant. For example, if AI data processing does make the oceans transparent, Mm. are submarines still any use to anybody if everybody can find out where they are? Yeah, that's a good point. So I say that at this point in time, what we've been seeing, including, for example, in Ukraine, is that software algorithms, AI has primarily been used to actually improve legacy systems. So it's not so much that we're seeing the kind of new fancy system that we've never seen before and everything changes, but rather we have the old systems and are just getting better or faster, more efficient. So things like, you know, the analysis of satellite imagery has the time to process such imagery has gone down from hours to minutes, um, thanks to AI or software and things like that. So that's where we currently are, which unfortunately also means that you kind of need everything at the same time. You can't say we're just going to buy the kind of newer stuff and we don't need tanks anymore or we don't need whatever frigates. Uh, That's unfortunately not the case. One of the biggest fears is that If you have ever-increasing sensors, and this is one of the technological developments that we're also seeing, if your sensors are ever getting better and also cheaper and you can have just more of them, deploy more of them, and you have AI that can help you combine sensor data and also fill some gaps, you may indeed come to this point where, yeah, you can turn the oceans transparent, maybe not all of the oceans all at the same time, but nevertheless, where you can reconnoiter the seas much better. And that could mean that submarines could be found much more easily. And in the extreme case, that could actually mean that submarine-based nuclear deterrence, so, you know, nuclear weapons on submarines that are somewhere in the ocean and therefore guarantee second strike capability, which is something that our current security architecture relies on, could become obsolete. And that would be a kind of 
catastrophe in the sense that it would just destabilize the architecture that we are having at the moment. You may not like it. A lot of mm. people don't like nuclear deterrence, but that's where we are. And so what this example just shows, and again, it's just one example, it shows that new technology can at one point really kind of create these kind of moments of disruption where the old just isn't relevant anymore and power dynamics also and power balances change. I just have one final question. We are running out of time, regrettably, but do we need to rethink the way that soldiers are trained? Do they need to be taught to think more independently and to have the knowledge and the confidence to overrule the machines if necessary? Well, I think that's always been inherent to our system. Our system has always placed pretty significant discretion in the hands of our leaders. But again, coming back to the idea of hyperwar, we do have to think about how we train our leaders. First, how we select them, how we educate them, how we train them, because in an environment where conflict is going to accelerate, we know it will, as conflict begins to accelerate and as physical warfare also begins to pick up speed, we're going to need to optimize the kinds of decision-making processes and the decision-making talents that our officers and NCOs are going to possess. Look, I spent most of my life on active duty as an infantryman. We're always going to need grunts. We're always going to need infantry. But the challenge for generals was to deliver the infantry within range of the enemy where their success on the battlefield was virtually assured. You know, so when you close with the enemy to the range of the tip of the bayonet, that's still going to be the role of the infantry. But getting that infantryman to that point is going to require the capacity to think at speed and to employ to the maximum extent possible these evolving technologies so that when we release the infantry into the final part of the battlefield, we've set that young soldier, that young Marine up for the greatest uh, likelihood of success. Now, if your listeners have not seen the movie, they should take the time to uh, watch the movie Failsafe. It is a movie that was made in the late 50s or 60s, but it'll make your blood run cold because artificially intelligent nuclear deterrent command and control system run by artificial intelligence malfunctions. And it takes you through the terror associated with that kind of a system. Now, I led bilateral dialogues with the Chinese over the last several years on the issue of the employment of artificial intelligence and security and defense. And a very important conversation that we had was the uh, issue associated with AI-empowered nuclear command and control. And to Ulrika's point a few minutes ago, nobody likes to talk about nuclear deterrence, but it is a fact of life. And we've got to make sure that we understand exactly how artificial intelligence is going to change the nature of warfare, the character of warfare, as we improve our capacity to wage war in context of the nature of war, which is the human dimension. Dr. Ulrika Franke and General John Allen, thank you both for joining us. That is it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week and look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk was produced by Emma Searle and Christy O'Grady. Christy also produces The Foreign Desk Explainer. To contact the Foreign Desk team, you can email emma at es at monocle.com. And don't forget to subscribe to Monocle magazine and to our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Muller, thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye.